In this episode, we are treated to a special edition of our podcast, which was recorded live with members of Spark Church and Etz Chaim, and features questions from the two congregations on optimism, the end times, and the hope of multi-faith conversation. The topic of discussion, a transforming faith for a broken world, why Jewish and Christian hope matters. This week on A Rabbi and Pastor Walked In. Now, with Kevin's introduction there, I think uh, we are ready to sort of talk about what we feel like or, or where we have some hope or if we have hope or where that comes from in both of our faith traditions. And one of the things I was reminded of learning from you is the concept of tikkun alam. And I don't think the Christians in our community are very familiar with that phrasing or concept. Um, and that does have some sort of connection to hope. And I was wondering if you would just share briefly with them. I'm throwing you a curveball in the moment, but... It's okay. There are... Tikkun means to straighten or to fix or to prepare, actually. And tikkun olam originally was a correction of Jewish practice so that it'd be possible for people to do it. But it's also in a prayer that was developed right around that same time. It's the one where we talk say that it's our obligation, our duty to worship God in a certain way. And it says, Litaken olam we expect God to correct the world with a divine rulership, with a divine government. We are still waiting for that government. And then today, tikkun olam, in a liberal Jewish context, means that we have an obligation to do social justice and to make the world better. That we don't wait for God to make the world better. We have to work with God to make the world better. So that's what tikkun olam is. It's our responsibility as people to do a divine act of making the world better. And so I've heard it translated often as like sort of the fixing or restoring of the universe or of the world. I'll, I'll be happy if I can restore Palo Alto. No, I don't know I about the entire universe. <clears throat> I just, I'll leave that to God. No, I, I, yeah, no. But in terms of the translation. In the, yeah, in the translation. Olam can mean this world. It can mean the next world. Hmm. It can mean the entire universe. Um, but basically, tikkun olam is we should be doing things that make the world better. If you ask me, I'm a translator, so no, I always that's good. So, get down and dirty So is it. that a place where you find some hope? So as we start to talk about um, you know, our faith and the world and where we find hope in some of the moments of chaos, what would you, how would you say how your faith has formed that in your experiences as a rabbi? And a friend of mine and I, he's a rabbi, he asked me a couple weeks ago, we were taking a walk, he said, so what do you think about the world? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're just getting to know each other, but he's we haven't known each other for a while. And, um, and, it, it, and I knew that I was going to be giving this talk, and I said, I'm glad you asked me that question. Do I have hope? What do I think about the world? Is it, a, is it a fixable world? I believe, yes, the world is a fixable world. I don't believe the world is going to any one climax. Mm-hmm. I don't believe the universe is going to go to any one climax. I'm not waiting for something to happen on the world. So for us and for me personally, I... I'm looking at millions and billions and trillions of little actions, opening the door for somebody, picking up something, helping somebody in with their guard. With their, uh, I saw people helping each other um, walk in with some people carrying their plate and carrying the water for other people. All those little things make the world better. Those are the kind of things that restore your faith in human beings. So no matter what we do that's a good act that helps somebody else, whenever we do that, that has ramifications and echoes mm. and ripples that we can't even begin to imagine. But yes, but uh, tikkun olam is not the word that I use to, um, to mm. focus on my faith in the future. What? It's just a way to get there. Oh, nice. So for Christians then, our primary theology is that we do have an expectation when things are set to right. Um, and so the way that we often talk about our faith expectations or what happened in the person of Jesus at the resurrection and, and what will happen, uh, we talk about that sort of as the, um, 
the fancy, you know, weird theology, theologian word is inaugurated eschatology, where inaugurated is like the beginning of things that are starting to, you know, the beginning of something, and then eschatology is the study of the things that will happen at the end. So that's the so, beginning and the end in one Right, the, be, the, the beginning of the end, but it's not the end yet, right? Um, that with the person of Jesus and the resurrection, that God then started the process, for lack of a better room, like I would translate that for me as like, knowing what I know within both Jewish and Christian tradition, like a little bit that God starts the process in that of tikkun olam of sort of fixing and restoring things, but it's a work and it's not obviously all done yet. So we as Christians are looking forward and anticipating a time when Jesus comes again. And, um, and in that process, then, uh, uh, Jerusalem crashes a new Jerusalem, a new, a new heaven and a new, a new earth come crashing down here. It's all very, nice apocalyptic literature that's very similar to what Ezekiel uses and what Isaiah uses um, that's used at the end of our text in the New Testament um, in Revelation when it says that um, there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, um, and that um, the old has gone sort of like the new has come, that we have this anticipation where things are set to right. Um, one Christian theologian right now, N.T. Wright, says you can tell people that they're, when they die they're going to go to heaven, but you should just tell them they're not going to be there very long. Um, which, so the joke is sort of like you, um, you go up and you come right back down <laughs> because in Revelation, heaven comes crashing down. And part of what we see in Christian tradition is the belief that um, Jesus is always saying all the time in the Gospels, the kingdom, like if this person has been healed, if this person has been set free, if these things have happened, then the kingdom of God is here or at hand or is coming. The rule and reign of God where God makes things right. And the way that I understand that, because when I read Jesus, I read him as a first century Torah observant, kosher keeping Jew. Um, which is what most Jewish Christian scholars who read the Synoptic Gospels in particular arrive at. Um, whether or not they have any belief in any theology regarding Jesus, they read the New Testament as, a his- as historical writings of that time period. Um, when I see Jesus doing those things in the Gospels, then I see him saying, just like we have a hope that someday there will be no more cancer no more tears, no more crying. When Jesus is in that moment um, saying you're healed and the person is healed, that that's the kingdom of God crashing in, in that moment. That, that the way that God wants it to be, where there's no more sickness or no more dying or no more tears, is starting to break through. Um, but it, it's not that it's everywhere yet. So we see these tastes and peace. So I would say that, uh, you know, in the book of James, it says faith without works is dead. That you, you, it's not enough to just look at somebody who's hungry and say, oh, go be well and not give them any food, right? That James, who, by the way, his name was Jacob, Yaakov, and he was Jesus's brother. But when King James translated the Bible in the 1600s, he, into the King James, he wanted his own name to appear. So he changed all the New Testament Jacobs to James. Um, so we still call it James today. Yeah. Translation. It's always a fun piece. Hi. Hi, Jacob. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, uh, when we, when we look at all of that, we start to see this hope of God's rule and God's reign breaking through. So when we do these things, um, we can start to see the kingdom of heaven breaking in. But of course, we would all agree there's tons of suffering, there's heartache, and there's pain. Um, particularly, I think, as clergy members, Ari and I have had lots of conversations of where we've had to stand with families during times of um, great hope and celebration and also deep pain and, and loss. And speaking personally, I mean, I've stood by caskets that are just way too small. Um, You know, a six-year-old should not have cancer and die. So for us as Christians, the expectation is that we are looking forward to a time when there's no more cancer. And we don't have to contend with that anymore. Um, Yeah, that would be our hope. Let me do a couple strange things, as Kevin said. (laughs) About four ticks west of uh, Sane. But... uh, there are a couple symbols in Jewish thought and practice that give me hope. Um, the first one is very strange. And it is a story of the scouts that Moses sent out to scout out the land of Canaan, Canaan. And they come back and they say, 
Two of them say, yeah, we can do it, and ten of them say, oi, we can't do it. The people are so big, the cities are so well fortified, we can't do it. And they scare everybody, and they can't do it. And God said, okay, you think you can't, you won't? You'll wander for 40 years in the wilderness. But just at the end of that story, God says, but when you get there, here are some things to do. And so it happens that when we do things, we tend to do them wrong, often do them wrong or have something go wrong as we're getting it all started. But what's really interesting about this particular story, it's chapters 13 and 14 in the book of Numbers. In chapter 13, it lists the scouts, and it lists them by their parent and their tribe. And there are seven times in the book of Numbers that the tribes are listed. And almost every time they're listed in the order of birth, or more or less like that. There are some, but close to that. In this case, it's nothing like that. In this case, if you look at the order of the scouts, go back and look and, and check the order of the birth. You know, Leah had four, and then uh, Bilhah had two, and then Zilpah had two, and then Leah had two more, and then Rachel had two. If you look at the order of the birth of the scouts, you'll find that the order is two steps forward and one step back. It's a really strange thing. I was doing a long set of research on this. I'm not going to bore you with it. But in any case, <laughs> it's two steps forward hmm. and one step back. That is, no matter whether you think it's getting better and better and better, something is going to go wrong sooner or later, and there's going to be a retrograde motion. Hmm. And people are going to think, oh, no, it's all going to go to pot now. Right. But the fact is it's two steps forward and one step back, and two steps forward and one step back. You get forward but you always have setbacks. When the priesthood was inaugurated in chapter uh, uh, 10 of Leviticus, two of Aaron's four sons did something wrong and were burned up. Now you'd think that that would be, those are the two oldest. You'd think that would be, maybe we'd never have a priesthood. It was was illegitimate from the get-go because they didn't make it, but we had a priesthood. Hmm. We just overcame it. That is, there will be setbacks. So my feeling of hope is based on the fact that we've had setbacks in scouts, Mm -hmm. in prophecy, and in priesthood. Certainly in kings. (laughs) You read the stories of the kings in the Bible, and this one did right, and this one did wrong, and this one did right, and this one did wrong. And it sounds like the history of the American presidency in some respect. I think in kings it almost feels like two steps back, maybe one step forward. (laughs) But you know, we never had a king standing on the uh, president on the top of the White House looking at somebody taking a bath. You can't see anybody taking a bath (laughs) from the top of the White House. But anyway, the other thing that I want to say is a strange Jewish practice is on the end of the year, uh, after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we have a holiday uh, called Sukkot. And at the end of that, we finish the cycle of the Torah readings and we read the end of Deuteronomy. And then we connect it to the beginning of Genesis. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. that would sound like an endless cycle of repeat and repeat and repeat. But we have a reading from the prophets called the Haftarah that follows that. And that's from Joshua. Mm-hmm. That is, it's not just a cycle. It right. also goes forward. Yeah. It's a spiral. Spiraling forward. So two steps forward, one step back. Connect to the beginning, but take a step forward. Hmm. All of the things that make us feel as if we're not getting anywhere or that we've gone back irrevocably, mm-hmm. I know that we're going to get past it. Hmm. And that, honestly, is my feeling of greatest hope. Hmm. To know that there's going to be a setback, no matter what it is, because yeah. we're human and we screw up, but we will get past it and take a step forward. I... I agree. I think um, we have a tendency to perceive um, history as linear and our, even our narrative, the, the one that we share within the Hebrew scriptures, within the Tanakh, uh, what Christians call the Old Testament, um, and then the one in the New Testament. We can look at that and we can go, well, this is just a, we have a myth of progress. We sort of look at things and we go, I think we've always gotten better. And particularly in North America, Western American exceptionalism, we like to perceive that there's always this constant progression towards something better, that we've had this progress. But when you go on one of our tours with us to Israel and you go to that beautiful place you were just mentioning where King David could have looked down onto a rooftop with Bathsheba, um, you can see that they had indoor plumbing. 
And you can see in Ahiel's house, there's a toilet seat. And you're like, wait a minute. We didn't invent indoor plumbing? Like, you know, that, that existed not just in the Romans, but all the way back in the Kings? And the answer is yes. So I think with, for me, I always think about how... I think they were just pouring pitchers of water on her head. Well, yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, even when you go to any gate... Yep you can see the sewer system underneath the pavers. For those of you who have been to Israel with us, right? I mean, it's, it's quite incredible, the ingenuity. And I think when we bring Americans there, they're like, how? I didn't know that they knew how to do those things or how to build those things or how those structures consist. And we're like, no, of course, the ancients aren't like people that never graduated preschool. Like, I think we are in such a linear progression that we often feel hopeless when we perceive our current state as not moving forward fast enough or going backwards. Let me just say when you, yeah. in terms of technology, there was, I was reading an article that said what, somebody asked a question, said what was extremely expensive in ancient times that's cheap now? Well, there's a lot of things, but the one thing this person said was light. Hmm. Light was difficult to get. It was expensive. It was oil or whatever it right. was, but there was no and you have a light, let there be light. Okay, turn the light on. Mm-hmm. I, it was go out and get it and make sure, make a fire. You know, there weren't matches. It was all that kind of stuff. And the thing is that we are bringing more light to the world and seeing it more clearly with greater lenses. We're also obscuring our view of heaven. Hmm. We can't see the sky at night. Mm-hmm. That's a, two steps forward. And one step back. Mm-hmm. We have to correct that. Right. I'm not going to go into my diatribe no, I like on that on dark skies, but the thing is that yeah. we move forward, we find something that works, we make it work, we work it until it just drives everything else out of existence, and then we have to correct it. Mm-hmm. We make mm-hmm. a tikkun mm-hmm. olam, we mm-hmm. correct the world, and make the skies dark so we can see the sky and wonder again. Mm-hmm. But, but these are the kind of things that go on. Yes, technology will right. make things better, but now we have technology that one person can sit in a room and destroy entire economies can hack into a government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some crazy person. There are a lot more good people in the world than there ever used to be. But there are more people in the world, there are a lot more bad people in the world than there ever used to be. Mm-hmm. And two steps forward, one step back. I, Is, yeah, I think if your faith tradition holds space for exactly that, and you've taught me earlier, you said you know, in, in the um, Hebrew calendar, it always starts at night. And, and I love that picture, right, that, that we don't get to start in the light. We, we start in darkness in the evening. It was evening and then morning the first day. And um, when I read the Bible, I, I teach a class where um, we read through the Bible chronologically in five months. It sounds really crazy, and it's kind of speed reading, and it's about 10, 11 chapters a day, six days a week. And then I, I give thoughts daily to try to understand it and, um, and teach on that. And it's primarily like historical, cultural context kind of information, like why does Lot do this, or why is Abraham doing this, or why are the kings doing this, and trying to help us understand and give some space for our story. But the main reason to read through so quickly is because we get stuck in these tiny moments, and I feel like this is what I do in my life. Like I can open up the news, and I can go, oh my goodness, right? Like that's it. I'm stuck in this one small moment of everything's terrible, and I feel like it's just... I can look at the, the step backwards and feel like there's no movement. But when I read through our narrative, our biblical story, quite quickly, I get that 30,000-foot bird's-eye view, and you step out of it, and you realize, you know what, for me at least, the story isn't about Jacob, right? I don't want my daughter to grow up and become Jacob. No offense, but like, I, I really don't want, her, I don't want her to trick me. I don't want her to steal anything from somebody else. I mean, ultimately, I'm really deeply glad that Jacob is Jacob and Jacob can become Israel. But not much of Jacob's character is a character I would want my own child to emulate, other than the wrestling and the striving at the end, right? He he gets there. But early on, it's not like I'm going to open up the book of, of Judges and say, let's be like one of these people. Apart from Deborah... And maybe one or two others. Like, I don't want her to grow up and be like Samson, right? That does not sound like it. He, he makes too many mistakes and ends up blind. So I don't read my Bible to say, let's grow up and become these heroes of faith. Instead, when I read my narrative, and this is where my hope comes from, I read it and go, whoa, that's so amazing that God can use Jacob. And that God can take Jacob, who did deceive and who did lie and had all these other things going on, but then eventually become somebody much more... 
um, of character that I would want my daughter to emulate. And God can use that. And I mean, if we were to write our own stories, I think if I were to write my own scrapbook story, there's a whole bunch of pages I wouldn't let any of you read, right? I would rip these pages out and go, nope. And then I I did exactly the next right thing, right? And you don't get to read about the failure. But because our text includes all of these human dramas with all of these people making big mistakes, for me, the hope isn't found in in a human being doing something right. It's found in God being good and finding a way to work within all of human history, like from that 30,000-foot view, in, in spite of us. That God's not stuck in this moment. I can get stuck in the moment of somebody. And, and one person, as you've mentioned, could do something really terrible and, and derail everything for a, a community of people. But God is bigger than all of that. And I think that's part of where my hope comes from, is finding that larger step out of the narrative. And then Jesus does this teaching in Matthew chapter 25, where um, he says, you know, in the, at the end, there will be a judgment day. And in the judgment day, God is going to separate the people from the right to the left, from the sheep and the goats. And he will say, come to me, all of you who are faithful. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you came and visited me and enter into the kingdom of life. And they will say, the righteous will say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did you see you thirsty, sick, or in prison that we visited you? And Jesus says, I tell you, whenever you did it to anyone, you did it to me. And then he says the opposite to the goats. You know, when you didn't take care of the hungry or the poor or those sick or in prison, you didn't do it unto me. Depart from me. I never knew you. Now, that can sound, maybe it sounds really depressing right now. I've just given you like a judgment day scenario. But um, for me, it's hope because... I can offer a glass of water to a thirsty person. And, and, and I can help somebody who's hungry. And I can visit the sick. And I, and I can visit those who are suffering or in prison. And if in every one of those moments where there's pain, like all of those moments include how the world shouldn't be. But Jesus is telling us, for me, in that moment when you do this thing, I'm there. And you've done this sort of holy act and you've done it for me. There's hope for me then, even in the moments where somebody shouldn't be hungry um, and, and I, can, I can help alleviate that. So I think those are those two places where I find a lot of hope. In First in John, lastly, it says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So for me, that's a Christian hope. Um, that I don't get to see God, but when, when we, and together Ari and I hopefully are modeling this in our community, and he's become one of our dearest friends. Um, our, our families share events together, and, and we love so much of life together. There's so much hope there for me, and, and that's part of what um, gives me hope in the world. As I say, one more little analogy. Think of your questions, because we're going to invite you up uh, mm-hmm. in a second. So if you even want to find your way to this microphone, go right ahead. In the book of Esther, God is not mentioned once, not at all, which is why that book is given to people who are learning how to be scribes, because if they mess up, they're not going to mess up with God's name, Mm -hmm. or even the word God. But um, the, the world looks like it's just hopeless. God is not present. Right. The Persians are in control of everything. They're not necessarily bad, but the king is an ultimate buffoon. And he says, and Haman comes to him and says, oh, do you mind if I kill out an entire people? I'll give you some money. And the king says, okay. So, I mean, it's that, it's that kind of a world. And Haman says to the king, he says, you know, there's a people, their laws are different than everybody else's. Right. I don't think you should tolerate them. And that's when he offers the money and the king says, go right ahead, do what you want. Well, some of the commentators say, you know, what it was about us that allowed us to survive this whole thing was not just the unique and fortuitous placement of Esther as the king's wife to argue on our behalf, but we did have laws that we were following Hmm. that were different than having a half-year drunken party in the (laughs) palace. And when we stay true to our values... Mm -hmm as Jewish people, as Mm -hmm. religious people, and I would say this applies also to every people in every religion, when you stay true to Mm. the highest values you have, then you've got something to offer the world. Mm. 
and to make the world better. Mm -hmm. And if you don't stay true to your values, then who the heck are you? What difference do you make? You're just another part of the problem. Mm. It's the staying true to your values, even in a world where God is not manifest, visible, Mm. and things are going to hell in a handbasket. That's what makes things better. Right. There's one other thing that I wanted to mention. So I'm not a very messianic person, and I'm not going to go into why. You can ask me if you want. But in any case... We have a lot of situations and stories in our, in our tradition about the Messiah. And one of the stories was that um, a guy went to heaven and saw the Messiah. Rabbi went up there and saw Messiah. And he said, oh, Messiah, when are you coming? And he said, today. And the rabbi comes back and tells all of his colleagues in the school and says, I saw the Messiah. He was sitting at the gates of Rome. He was a leper. He was binding his ugly, stinking, oozy wounds. And I asked him when he's coming. He said, today. But, but I don't see him. Hmm. And his colleague said, he was quoting Psalm 95. Hmm. Hayom, today, im if you listen to God's voice. Hmm. Hmm. It only matters if you listen to God's voice. He was quoting a verse. Hmm. So the question is, do we actually have a chance of seeing the world corrected today? And the answer is, yes, if we're doing it our own thing right. Hmm. If we're waiting for somebody to do it for us, well, and there are two views of the, of the Messiah in, in both of our religions. Mm-hmm. One is that mm-hmm. God is going to do it when the world gets to be so bad that we couldn't possibly dig our way out of the hole. Right. And the other was... God is going to bring Messiah when we've gotten to the top and made it all work. And you say, what do you need Messiah for? And the answer is to say, yeah, that's right, you made it. (laughs) (laughs) So I would prefer to live in that latter world Hmm. where we actually can congratulate ourselves for making it all work with each other. Hmm. But um, we can also screw things up so badly that only an utter redemption intervention can take care of it. Hmm. I think there is so much hope for me when we do get to live into the ways in which we're created, right? So um, when we are following God's commands, for, for me, there's just so much, uh, so much joy in that moment because it's exactly what you've talked about. Like, now I'm doing that which I've been created to do. Um, if, back in Genesis, right, God plants a garden, it says, right, like God plants a garden, but then he tells Adam, the human, now you, now you tend it. So I, I feel like immediately there's, there's a job, right? So even when everything was perfect, it's not that that just meant Adam, the human just sat around in a, in a hammock all day with a nice fuzzy drink, you know, waiting for the next tropical breeze. There was work to be done. And I like that. I want to have a purpose. I want to have something to do in this world. Um, and I think well, we've talked about this uh, on other occasions, but... You know, part of why Spark is here and able to rent space here at Eight Claim is because, because Rabbi Ari invited us um, and, and helped make all of that possible. But that heroic, and for me, it was like an amazing invitation. For, for those of you who don't know, I, I mean, I used to drive down Alma and um, because I'd lived in Israel and Ari and I were already friends and I had been to events here at, at Eight Claim when we were thinking about starting Spark, I kept thinking about where will it be? Is it going to be at a school or a home or another church or where is this gonna, community going to be? But every time I would drive past Eights, I would, I would drive like this, just crane my neck and keep staring at this building, this beautiful space because I, I when I come here... Um, even for the, the services that Ari has invited me to that are part of the Jewish tradition and faith services here, I feel very welcomed and I feel very at home and I love this space. And it, it's felt like a home for me. So to be invited in was such a gift. But every time, every time I would look um, and, and think maybe it would be there, I would think, no, it's not going to be there. And the reason why, honestly, is because I thought, hey, Christians have done so much harm to the Jewish community. And I'm aware of our painful, horrible history. Um, I don't think that those were um, people that understood the teachings of Jesus or that Jesus, that wasn't his name, and it was Yeshua, and he had a mom named Miriam and a father named Yosef, and he spoke <laughs> Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, and he was a kosher Torah-observant Jew. I, mean, I think there was all these misunderstandings and deep pain behind it, but there's no excuse for it. 
And so I thought if I were, um, if, if I had been subject to those abuses, I would be very afraid to invite those people into this building, in this community, no matter how well-intended and meaning and, and kind they might be. I would just be concerned. Um, but because of the work Ari's done and because of all of you, um, because of how beautiful this community is, you all took that chance and welcomed us in. And now we're like going on six years and we have podcasts together and members of, of Eitzchim and Spark have gone to Israel together. And when one of our members had a, an accident where she broke her arm, members of Eitz came and brought food. And, and now we're collecting goods to welcome a newly arrived Muslim family from Afghanistan who are refugees. And we're doing all this work together. And we've done like 1,500 people for the multi-faith you know, peace walk for 9-11. There's been so much more hope brought into the world because we, we tried. And I'm uh, deeply indebted um, to that. And, and I think, Ari, I just want to continue to say um, it's because of, because of work that, that we both do and where we make mistakes and then we listen to one another and we apologize and we keep working again because it might be two steps forward and one step back every once in a while, right? But we try to find ways to turn on light in a dark place. Well, you know, we were the first Presbyterian synagogue. Right. We were, our, our incubator was the first Presbyterian church downtown, which also incubated Colomet, the conservative congregation. So we, we owed it. <laughs> right. It's payback, paying it forward. More hope, right. But, you know, but, but then again, one of the reasons that I got to know Danielle is because we were looking for a place for High Holy Days. We wanted a bigger space, and so we went to the church that she and Kevin were working at, which shall remain nameless right now, right. and uh, had a wonderful space. As a matter of fact, it had a youth lounge where they worked uh, that was bigger than this room. So, I know, that was, that was just, just the youth lounge. But, um, but the elders of that church in their infinite wisdom decided that they couldn't possibly have something like that uh, sectarian and Jewish in their church, so it didn't work out. So Even though I advocated for it. Years. Three <laughs> years. So, so we became friends because I was, I was the woman on the inside trying yeah. to <laughs> see what we might be able to do. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but but let it me, kind of felt like a step backwards. It was a step backwards. It was backwards. discouraging for me. Uh, and, we've, and we've actually had uh, uh, Hindu classes, Hindi classes here. Uh, the only thing that we have as a requirement is there not be iconography, there not be pictures and things. But otherwise, believe what you want. And so they were teaching Hindi, which they worship Hinduism, which does have many, many gods. But it's, it's okay. It depends on how you, how you work at Weary. And so incubating a Hindi class. Um, so let me ask you, I mean, the topic, world, you know, hope. Do you, is this a, an optimistic group or a optimistic? <laughs> Are you op- I just want to see, raise your hands if you... If you feel that you're optimistic about the future. Oh, yay. Look at that. It's about two-thirds optimistic. Ah, that's, that's not good. bad. I'm not going to pass the pessimists. That's fine. Because uh, I think that they're, not, they're optimists and they're realists. Hmm. Not so much optimists and pessimists. Right. Optimists are people who want to see it be better. And realists are the ones who are saying, really? What are you looking at? <laughs> I, and I, I'm, I started off life as a scientist, so I'm pretty much a realist. And so the issue of my looking at the world is, well, first I take data, <laughs> and I count up this, that, and the other, and plot it on charts and say, oh, I don't know. But I can't do all the data collection that I need, so I just have to pay my money and take my choice and decide to be an optimist because I don't want to live in the other world. Hmm. It's just not, it's not a world that I want to live in. If I don't have anything in my religion to offer something better to people, then, oh, let's just wallow in the latest uh, cause du jour and, and wonder about the human inhumanity to people, um, then, then why have a religion? Hmm. No. doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I wanted to ask the pastor, thank you for doing this. It's, we've been listening to the podcast as we walk. And it's oh, you're so kind. Cool. Thank you. Um, you talked about heaven crashing in mm-hmm. and could you um, give us a little more on that and sure. we're taught in Judaism that the act is as important as the prayer right 
um, I, I think that's what I was getting from it, that the act comes first, and then mm-hmm. you're in a space. Okay. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, first, I'll just say that the language that we have in the book of Revelation, which is the last book that we have that talks about the hope that we have to come, um, is apocalyptic language. So it, it's very similar to what Ezekiel and Isaiah both use in, in both of those books where it's kind of weird, right? Like some parts, like Ezekiel sees that weird, sweet ride, says the rims were high and awesome on his weird vehicle, like when he goes to... Um, or in the end of Isaiah, it talks about how never again will an infant live but a few days which I love this passage, and and instead sort of like we have this hope. So when John talks about this in Revelation, he is quoting uh, Hebrew scripture prophets. So I would just say, first of all, um, I don't know, I haven't seen it happen yet, so I'm not really sure how it's going to happen, right? And And I hold it all in terms of a mystery. My daughter's always asking me very specific questions. Um, you know, will our house be there and all these other things? I'm always like, eh, boy, like, please stop asking the question. Do you think it'll be there? <laughs> Just turn it back. Um, yeah, so the other day she said to me, because my, my great aunt passed away, her great aunt passed away, and she said, um, is, is Aunt Jean happy? And I said, yes, she's happy. Um, and she said, well, is she in heaven? I said, well, yes, right, she's, she's in heaven, and, and everyone there is kind. And she said, even the people that killed Jesus? And I was like, all right, we're in deep water already. It's like, she's four, I'm already in trouble. So, so I'll just say that, that I don't know that I have an answer to your question. I just have the language that's given to me in my text. And the language given to me is, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I see the voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with people. And so instead of that separation or that gap between wherever God rules and reigns in terms of things being set to right, um, the dwelling of God is now with us. Um, and we get to live in, I actually think, like the garden, still have work to do um, in that kingdom. That we're not going to be back on that hammock with that tropical breeze. I think there will be a renewed work to do. Um, and, and so I... I saw a long time ago a, a, a Catholic priest friend of mine had this T-shirt that said, Jesus is coming, look busy. And, um, and, and I think there's a, there's a joke behind that, but I, I do, for me, my faith is deeply wrapped up in how I live and, and what I do. But I, there, because for a variety of reasons, because I think I do study Jesus in his first century Jewish context as a, as a rabbi with disciples. And all of that is you know, participating in, in the master's life and learning the rabbi's teachings so that you can train them up for others and, and provide them for others to drink. And all of this very, we study Perke Avot together. And we're always, every time we read Perke Avot and Ari's teaching me, I'm seeing all these resonances back into the teachings of, of Jesus and the disciples and Paul because they're contemporary texts in some ways within a, within a few hundred years of each other. So, um, so for me, there's, there's an action to it. But I recognize that within other traditions of Christianity, there's much more a, an anticipation of like, what do I need to do to get this golden ticket to get into the, gold, the heavenly amusement park in the sky? And there isn't so much. And, and then it's just, I believe these things. And if I believe these things and confess these things, then I get the ticket to go to the amusement park. I'm not saying that people actually think that, but sometimes it comes off that way. Um, and... That's Honest, called moral dessert. Moral dessert, yeah. Um, I'm so much more shaped by reading this text in its historical context that makes me see and hear words like, whoever claims to live in Jesus must walk as Jesus walk. And when I hear that walk word, I hear halakha. I hear that Jewish like law. right interpretation of how to live this life and how to walk it in such a way. And when Jesus is asked, what's the number one commandment? He says in Mark 12, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hey, God. God's one. Yeah. He yeah. says, and then he says, love the Lord your God. Like, and then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself is the second. Like unto it. I mean, that's his answer. So his answer is to quote text, which he's quoting all over the place. Now, I know that that's 
I think that's a surprise to Christians because they don't recognize that um, that Jesus is always quoting text. And my, my Hebrew scripture, uh, Hebrew professor um, for the Hebrew scriptures said, by the way, Jesus never said anything original. That was his joke. I mean, this isn't a Christian semina- cemetery. Seminary? Cemetery? All that play together? Seminary. We always do that. Yeah, we always do that. Um, and the joke was basically just that he's always quoting text. And when we read the New Testament for Christians... There, there wasn't a New Testament written yet. Like when these stories are happening, they're not, they're not, car- they're living the story. They're not carrying it around with them. When Paul says in the New Testament, he'll say, in Britannia, he'll say, uh, all scripture is God breathed and useful for building up. He's not talking about the New Testament. It wasn't written yet. He's talking about the Hebrew scriptures. And Paul studied at the feet of Rabbi Gamliel. And he says, I am a Pharisee of Pharisees and I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And he's very proud of his heritage. Christians read their New Testament predominantly as a Gentile text, even though it's not. So I think I've shifted and changed a lot of my understanding of, of doing work um, because that's what I'm created to do. Now, it's not, I don't do it because I, I get points for it, right? Like, I don't do it because I think that God's going to give me some extra speedy ticket into the world to come, whatever that might be. I joke all the time, even if my name were off the list somehow, I would still do what I'm doing now. Because right now I get to see that rule and reign here, present. It's immediately like, and whenever you've done this to the least of these, you've done it to me. So I wanted to say at this point, people, especially Christians, ask me, what do I think about Jesus? And when I, because of my relationship with Kevin and Danielle, I tell them I've met Jesus. Because they live their life the way a person would who really believes in Jesus, the things that they do, the way they live their life, the morality with which they live their life, the love and kindness with which they live their life, I have personally met Jesus. Beyond that, I don't know. Other comments, questions? That's a very humbling statement, by the way. I know, every time I tell that, you just... Yeah, it'll keep me awake at night. (laughs) (laughs) My first response when you you asked about... um, being optimistic or pessimistic or realistic, my first response was, "I'm not. I'm not optimistic. Mm-hmm. You know, I just am not optimistic." But my question is, how do you be optimistic? I mean, that sounds like a yeah, it's a great a, question, a silly question, but what, no, it's a great question. How how do you be optimistic? I, I would say, um, for me personally. When I read, if I read the news, I'm like, oh boy, right? But the news doesn't report the good stuff, rarely. If it's a really, really good story, they'll, they'll share they it, They put right? the good story at the end of every national newscast. Right, right. I mean, you, you just continue to hear how awful people just are. Just turn it on at five minutes to the end of the hour or whatever it is, and you'll get the good news. And, and personally, I'll say that, that one of the things that's deeply difficult for me right now, um, daily, is that there are a lot of people out there who are being represented in the media who claim the name of Jesus, and that's a, it, in a faith I don't recognize. And so I, I feel that's very discouraging. I feel really discouraged by that on a daily basis. And I can get stuck there, um, or just stuck with man, human, humans, our capacity for evil and to do, to do ill. It's discouraging on all sides of all of the equations and everything else. Where I get hopeful is back to Mr. Rogers. I was quoting him earlier in my sermon where, you know, Mr. Rogers was a Presbyterian minister. I don't know if you know that. And uh, there's an earlier documentary about him. I know there's one coming out now, but there's an earlier one that's beautiful. It's called America's Favorite Neighbor, and it has all this raw footage from the 60s and 70s, and it's amazing. And he leans in and he says, you know, the place between my mouth and another person's ears is holy ground. And And he just was so careful with his words because of that. But he, he says, look for the helpers. And I would add to that and be a helper. And when you do those two things, there's hope. When you find those little bits of places. Um, so I've been feeling so deeply overwhelmed by the refugee crisis. But now we're able to help one family. Now, I know it's just one family. 
But man, if we just haven't showered them with love, because they're getting like all of our deep hope and love for all of our fellow human beings, brothers and sisters that have been displaced, we can shower it on those that are starting to come closer to our purview here. So for me, that's where my optimism comes from is when I get to sit and talk with any, any other human being and have one hopeful conversation or find one helper or do one good moment, indeed bring that cup of water to a thirsty world, that's where I find some hope. I walk here on that sidewalk along Alma, and sometimes kids ride their bikes past me, almost kill me, you know, just don't even think. But the majority of the time, people will say, I'm on your left, they're coming up behind me, you know, mm. or, or whatever it is, or there's this woman who has a dog the size of an elephant, it's got teeth the size, <laughs> you know, but she always moves her dog to the side. And so there is this string of interactions I have on the sidewalk, and most nice. of them nice. are good. Yeah. And every time I have an interaction with somebody who holds the door open, right. who does something nice, who warns you, who picks something up for you, Every time I see that, I think, yeah, humans are not bad. The majority of us are right. not bad. Right. Right. And it allows me to believe with all my heart that people around the world are basically nice. We just get driven by all kinds of hmm. demagogues and needs that allow us or spur us to deep they dig into our worst natures. But otherwise, I think that they're really good. And those, were, those interactions are what I find that uh, move me toward optimism. Mm. James. Um, so Spark and Ed's really do have something special going here. And in your travels to Israel and your work with colleagues around the um, world, have you seen other, other um, synergies like this, other, other co- collaborations? Um, if, if we can... If we can you can start a crystallization. If you start uh, understanding between a group, you can maybe grow out from there. I think you're right. I, I have seen other places. I just heard of a, a church, two churches in, in the Oakland. East Bay. In Oakland. Yeah. One was a, a traditionally black church, and the other is traditionally non-black, non-minority. White. White. And they've joined those two churches together with the two lead pastors, one black, one white. They decided not just to, they were having services with each other and they decided, oh, what the heck, let's just do it. Let's just join. Let's just make it one thing. As a matter of fact, that religious institutions are still one of the most segregated institutions Mm -hmm. in the country, except for Spark. Danielle and I are going to be writing a book called What I Like About Your Faith. And I'll tell you one of the things I like about hers is when I walk into eights, it's pretty much white. And when I walk into Spark, it's the United Nations. It really looks, it really looks nice. And I, and I wish, I envy, want that, and I don't know how to get it. But that's, you know, that, that's a possibility. But well, we'd have to go out and convert a whole lot of Well, you know, <laughs> there's this promise that God makes to Abraham, right? Which is that all nations will be blessed through Abraham and Abraham's descendants. Yep. And so I've joked for a long time um, that we're just, we're just spark is that is the answer to that blessing. Right. And that at some point the, the nations come in and the, the Gentiles come in and here we are, we meet in your place every Saturday, every Sunday afternoon. Right? I know, <laughs> but we, we don't worship together. We don't worship because together because we have yeah. sure. different. We've shared services every once in a while. Emphases. And yeah, we, we listen, but we, but I would say actually we don't have our liturgical services together. But there are things that we do together that are worship collecting, like right? Like this, or, or having our Holy Envy courses or highest form of study or collecting goods and caring for the needy or walking with our feet, praying with our feet. And Rabbi Chaim is such a beautiful example of that as well. And, um, my daughter, um, is good friends with Chaim and Karen's kids and the kids play together. And I just look at that and think, that's so cool, right? That all of our kids are growing up going, oh, I'm going to the pastor's house. I'm going to the rabbi's house, right? And they get to have these, these moments where, where it is more of life shared together. And I know, um, you know, when one member of Eitz Chaim hurts, if, if Spark finds out about it, Spark members are always asking, how can we help? Um, so I think that there are places where it's happening. I would also say, 
you know, it does have to be people that are prepared for the conversation. And particularly for those of us who are in the Christian faith, there's a lot for me, I would feel like I need to do a whole bunch of teaching before I would want to introduce a group of Christians to a group of Jews because I don't want there to be additional harm done. And I think that there's learning that needs to happen on, of our own history and our, our own wrongs that we need to own and understand before we can come into a community. And one of the reasons why this works is because I lived in Jerusalem and I lived in Nakhlaot and I spent time in kosher keeping Orthodox households. So when we were talking about, well, what are the rules for the community? I'm very respectful and of those rules and, and they're important to me. Um, because they're important to this community. So I think that we knew that those things would be possible because we knew we could share space together because there was that more mutual understanding and respect. Now, that's not to say I don't think it can, it could go out everywhere. But but I also think it, it takes a lot of learning um, and a lot of listening and a lot of embarrassment, a lot of, uh, on my part, uh, pain and making mistakes and then jumping back in again and, and having people who continue to, to try to educate me even though I... I have a lot of um, things I need to still learn. Well, we're close. Yes. I think so. We should end it. I have one reading. It's very short. Um, first of all, I just want to thank you all for coming. Second of all, I want to thank Spark for living in our synagogue mm-hmm. because it makes me feel more kosher as a Jew to <laughs> not feel so segregated from mm-hmm. the world. This is another way I feel optimistic. And um, this was a kind of a controversial reading that we put into our prayer book. Some people don't like it. Some people feel it's too goody-goody, but it's meaningful, and most of the kids like it a lot, and I'm glad the kids like it because it means that the next generation is being raised on hope. Mm. It's by Anne Frank. It's really a wonder that I haven't dropped all my ideals because they seem so absurd and impossible to carry out. Yet I keep them because in spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. I simply cannot build my hopes on a foundation of confusion, misery, and death. I see the world gradually being turned into a wilderness. I hear the approaching thunder. I can feel the suffering of millions. And yet, if I look up into the heavens, I think it'll all come out right one of these days, that this cruelty will end, and that peace and tranquility will return again. And in the meantime, I've got to hold on to my ideals, because maybe the day will come when I'll be able to carry them out. Mm. Thank you all for coming. Amen.